0: So we're in John 17, and we're going to pick up right where we left off in just a moment. But it struck me as I was as I was in the back, and I, I can't even tell you how much of a blessing it is to me just to come in and and be able to worship the last couple of songs, especially. I lead me to the cross, and then I fall face down, and and just coming into the presence of God, and. Truly sensing that we can be in the Holy of Holies, that we can enter into that that place that that while the throne room in heaven will be overwhelming and amazing and, and, and huge, that even now on this earth as we await His return, that we can enter into His presence is amazing to me. It's just amazing. And it happened on that night of Jesus' betrayal, which is even more amazing to me. He is on His way to His death. He knows that's the next thing on the agenda for the evening. And as He's teaching the apostles in John 14, 15, and 16, we've been going through all of that and talking to them and encouraging them and and saying, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in Me. and, And lifting them up and giving them legs for a long journey ahead. While he's doing all of that, his death is right there in the background. And then he stops somewhere, I think in the Cadrone Valley. He's taught them all these things and suddenly, as John 17 tells us, he spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven and he begins to pray. And in that moment, to have been there with Jesus praying, In in my estimation, would be the most profound moment in history. At least up to that point. Suddenly Jesus is praying and it's like, quiet John. Shut up Peter. Jesus is praying, you know? And to hear what he's saying. Because as I told you last week, if you want to know what matters most to a person, listen to them pray. And so across 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit saw fit that we would hear what He said. That we would enter into this prayer. If you ever need stillness, if you ever need encouragement, if you ever need building up, if you ever just need to calm yourself in the midst of the storm, go to John 17. Three minutes. That's how long it takes to pray through this prayer. Three minutes. And you will find yourself entering into this Holy of Holies. John 17 is... The Lord's Prayer, not the other one. I know that's the title given to the Our Father prayer that Jesus prays in Matthew six nine through thirteen and, and Luke eleven verses two through four. I know, I know that's that's recounted there, and we all say, "Oh, the Lord's Prayer." And if I said, "Let's pray the Lord's Prayer," you would all start, "Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name," you, and, and you immediately go to the Elizabethan language too, which I find interesting. <laughs> We we go to that. That's not the Lord's Prayer. I think the title given to it is somewhat misplaced. It's better called the Disciples' Prayer because it's a prayer that Jesus gave the disciples to pray. It is not a prayer for Jesus to pray. It's a prayer for us to pray. It's a pattern for prayer, an example for prayer that follows the disciples saying, Lord, teach us to pray. John taught his apostles, teach us. Teach us. And so He gives them this prayer. There's at least one line in the prayer that Jesus can't pray at all. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Why can't Jesus pray that? Well, tell me. What debt did Jesus ever owe to anyone? Nothing. He he, he doesn't owe anyone anything. And what was it that He cried out from the cross? Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them. Not Father forgive me, Father forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So here comes our high priest and our spotless sacrifice, who owes no man anything, who has never committed a sin, who is absolutely sinless, which is why he's both high priest and sacrifice. As Hebrews 4.14 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Sinless, spotless, perfect. And because He was that, the Hebrew writer says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. This is the one that belongs to Jesus. This is that great high priestly prayer, the Holy of Holies. And it's all Jesus, and it's all straight from the heart. So, picking it up in verse, uh, verse 12. Right where we left off, Jesus continues praying. While I was with them, He says, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given Me. Now wait a minute. Just stop right there. I've been keeping them in your name, which you have given me. So what is the name of God here? Yeshua. Yeshua. Jesus and the Father, which share the name. Jesus is Yahweh, Adonai. And so He says, I was keeping them in your name. There's power in His name, power to be kept which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. We talked about this, a recent study we call the Judas Conundrum. That the son of perdition, and yes, he is talking here, of course, about Judas, the one that got away, <laughs> the one that perished from faith. And he says he's the only one that perished, and note he says, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. What scripture? Psalm 41 verse 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 109 verse 6 says, Appoint a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand in his right hand. When he's judged, let him come forth guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. That's the prophecy that Peter points to as they're waiting in Jerusalem for power from on high, waiting, not sure what's going to happen next. And he says another's got to take his office. So in Acts chapter 2, chapter 1, chapter 2, they they cast lots to add someone to the office that had been vacated by Judas, the son of perdition. Should they have done that? We'll talk about that in just a few weeks when we get to Acts. Acts. Judas, the son of perdition. The Greek phrase, and I want to give you the whole phrase here, son of perdition is ho huios teis Or apoleos. Ho huios teis apoleos. And huios is that word for son. Son of perdition. But it doesn't mean son as in, well, kind of the Americanized or Western culture view of a son. It's just the male child. A huios was an inheritor. And if you look at it that way, Judas then would be the inheritor of perdition. Apoleos, which is ruin, waste, destruction. He is the heir of ruin. Judas is the successor of destruction. That word that usually we, we think, son, inheritor. And, and as a follower of Jesus, I think, yes, I've got my inheritance. the inheritance of Judas is destruction. He was the heir of his father. Not his father Simon Iscariot. No, he was the heir of his father, Satan. Son of destruction. I find it interesting, and you Bible students know, the same title, son of perdition, son of destruction was used by Paul to refer to Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3, Paul writes, Let no one in anyone, in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy, the falling away, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, hohuios te apoleas. The son of perdition, same phrase. Why? Why do both Judas and the Antichrist bear this exact same title? Because when it's all said and done, both will have been Satan-possessed. Not demon-possessed, but Satan-possessed. John 13.27 told us that Judas, after the morsel, it told us that, the, that Satan then entered into him. Luke refers to that as well, that Satan himself entered into Judas. The second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9, referring to Antichrist says he's the one who's coming in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and, and false wonders. But here's the thing, any life given over to the enemy, any life given over to the devil is a life destined to inherit waste destined to be a successor of destruction because the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And so those in the world who say, Well, I'd rather reign in heaven, you know, than reign in hell than be a, a servant in heaven, there's no reigning in hell. There's no water at all. <laughs> rain. No one's in charge in hell, not even the devil. But if you would side up with him, if you would reject Jesus and and side up and become a part of the devil's team, and really there are two teams, there are two choices here. Jesus, the Father, eternal life, or the enemy, evil and destruction. It's that simple, it really is that simple. Sunday school was right all those years ago. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, we've talked about Judas, but what's interesting to me here is this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in this prayer, Jesus chooses to mention him. Doesn't call him by name. Calls him by title. Heir, successor of destruction but what that indicates to me is that even while the betrayal is underway Judas is at this time on the way to the garden he's going to meet up with Jesus there along with the Roman cohort and the Jewish leaders ready to take Jesus into custody he is already in the act of betrayal and Jesus still has Judas on his heart and in this most holy of prayers of Jesus he's still thinking about Judas I believe with broken heart Remember what he says to Judas when he greets him in the garden. He says, friend, what are you doing? He calls him friend of all things. See, that's the way Jesus works. Jesus is all about the heart. Jesus knows the depth of the Judas tragedy. He says, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. That word perished is in the aorist tense in the Greek. I know that doesn't mean a lot, but let me explain. Perished in that verb tense is past, present, and future action. It's all three. So when he says, not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, what he's saying is he has perished, he is perishing, and he will perish. It's all-encompassing destruction. It's all-encompassing ruin. A life of perdition is past, present, and future. And as far as Jesus was concerned, Judas was already the son of ruin. He was already the son of destruction. Though his betrayal was yet to reach its fatal end, he was already there because as far as Jesus is concerned the heart is what matters. It's the heart that matters. And Judas, a long time before this, had already made up his heart. He had already made the decision. John 12, verse 4 tells us Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, was intending to betray Him. This was days earlier. John 12, 6, He was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So throughout the three-year ministry of Jesus, Judas is ripping off the Christ. His heart was already in that direction. Of course, John 13, verse 2 tells us, During the supper, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Note that language. Having already done it. He was the son of perdition. He is the son of perdition. He would ever be the son of perdition and note that Judas Iscariot is now known even biblically he is always referred to as the one who betrayed him if you look at the list of the apostles throughout the gospels it's always Judas Iscariot quote the one who betrayed him so he was he is at the time of this prayer and he ever shall be ever has been has continued for 2,000 years to be the son of perdition past present and future That defines the life history of Judas. What a waste. But I'm not here just to tell you bad news tonight about Judas. In fact, there's some amazing good news in verse 12. Because for all the focus on the son of perdition, he really is not the focus of verse 12 at all. Jesus is thanking the Father. Jesus is honoring the Father. Jesus is saying, Holy Father, keep them in Your name, verse 11, which You have given Me, that they may be one even as we. While I was with them, I was keeping them in Your name, which You have given Me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so the Scripture would be fulfilled. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying the focus of this verse is not one of them perished. It's the other 11 It's that the eleven are still there. It's that the eleven are walking with Him across the valley. It's that He hasn't lost any of the rest. Not one of them perished. And by the way, using that same idea, the aorist tense of perished, not one of them perished past, present, or future. And that is such good news, because when Jesus gets a hold of you, salvation is all three. Now track this with me. When Jesus gets hold of your life, salvation isn't just that day forward. Your salvation is past, present, and future. That's the amazing redemptive work of Jesus. Keep your finger here. Turn back to the prophet Joel. It's Just a few books back to your left in your scriptures. Joel chapter 2. And by example, consider what God had to say to Israel. What we could say about Israel right now is that for a time, for several hundred years, it was glorious. You know, the days of David leading up to the glorious reign of Solomon and and, and how how much splendor there was. And what was happening in Israel across that time, they had some good years. And then it kind of got bad. And then it was difficult. And then for 1,800, almost 1,900 years, there was no nation of Israel. Now there is again. They're struggling. They're fighting for their very survival. As our leadership is about to hand Iran a nuclear bomb. And Israel is saying, you don't understand what it's like to go through a holocaust. We do. You don't understand what it's like to have another nation tell you, We will drive you into the sea. So, past, present, and future, right now, it looks a little shoddy for Israel, unless you know the scriptures. Listen to what God says about his people to the prophet Joel chapter two, verse twenty three. Rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. And He has poured down for you the rain, the early and the latter rain, as before the threshing floors will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. And then I will make up for you, note this, I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. Any locust you can think of, basically, is what He's saying. My great army which I sent among you, You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And then my people, note this, will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. I don't know how you can read that and think that Israel is done. God says the day is coming and I will do it. Not Pastor Rick, not the Bridge Fellowship, not those who stand with Israel. I will do it, God says. And my people have a glorious future. And when that day comes, when the redemption of Christ comes, not just to a Jewish person here, a Jewish person there, but to Israel on the whole. As Paul talks about in Romans 11. Lord willing, we'll get there someday. When it comes to Israel as a whole, The Jewish people will recognize exactly what I'm telling you tonight and that is that salvation is past, present, and future. That their past was redeemed. That their present is redeemed and that their future would forever be redeemed. Not one of them perished in the past, in the present, or in the future. I was asked a question last week. Okay, it was Spencer. (laughs) And with your permission, Spencer, I'm going to ask it tonight. Sure. Okay, thank you. I knew he'd let me. <laughs> Spencer came up and asked a question, and I, and I repeat it because I've heard this many times before. And I know the heart, you know, as, as Spencer was asking, he was asking just out of the, the, the wonder of knowing his salvation. But here's the question. How can God be so good to me now when I was so bad to him then? And for some of you it was 10 years of not walking with the Lord, of a a wasted life, of a life of perdition. For others it was 30, 40 years of a life of perdition. And you look back, and though you glory in the fact that you walk with Jesus now, you look back and go, yeah, but that was so uh, not what this is. That was such a waste. So much ruin. Listen. The reason why God can be good to any of us today is not because of who we are. It's because of who he is. I mean, ultimately, Spencer, that's your answer. I thought about this all week long. Well, how could he possibly be so good to Spencer now, after all Spencer did back then? And the answer is because it's who he is, not who Spencer is. I know Spencer. <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> I've used up my allowance. It's because of who Jesus is. And don't forget that. It's not about who you are. It's not about who I am. I was listening to Christian radio tonight. I gotta tell you. I love the songs, I love the worship, but I hate how Oscar milk toast those announcers are. I mean, the whole commercial thing is about listen to our music and you'll have a good day. Well, you know what? You don't always have a good day. <laughs> and and, and I, it, just, it frustrates me because the depth and the richness of what we are caught up in here is far more than, did Jesus give you a nice day today? What did Jesus do for you today? Well, what did Jesus do for you today? How about, how was Jesus glorified today? How about what has today shown us of the wonders of who God is? We need to focus more on who He is and a whole lot less on who we are. Because the more I focus on who I am, and I'm way off nose, but I don't care. The more I focus on who I am, the less I feel secure in my redemption. But when I look at Jesus, I am absolutely rock solid saved. And He is glorified in this. It's because of who He is. God being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2.4 says. Because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, past tense, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Don't miss the power of that. Even when you were dead, He was making you alive. Even when I was dead in my past, He was redeeming my past. And I would tell each and every one of you, as I know myself, that the ruin of your past, He redeemed to be useful and valuable and part of what He is doing in you now. Which is why we still remember some of our pasts. He doesn't just cut it off. I don't remember anything after the day I got saved. And it's all just been praise 106.5 since then. (laughs) I love praise. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I love the music and I love the worship and I listen to it. I, I'm, I just sometimes get tired of how watered down Christianity seems to have become today. When we are walking in the biggest thing ever to hit the planet, we are part of a church, gang. And our role, A, number one, is to glorify Jesus in all that we do. To lift Him up. God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So do you get it? You were dead in the past. Jesus made you alive in the present. And in the ages to come He's going to show you even more glorious riches of grace than you can possibly imagine. That's because of who He is. And so as Jesus is talking about this, you know, I have focused for years on the son of perdition, the son of perdition, the son of perdition in verse 12. And verse 12 is not about the son of perdition. It's about the other 11. And it's the fact that, yes, past, present, and future, this guy's life is one of ruin. But past, present, and future, your life and mine is one of redemption and grace and truth and salvation and even glory. And we'll get to that. So, Jesus, that's one verse. Jesus, our high priest, first prayed over himself. We saw that the first five verses of this prayer. He he is the sacrifice. So he is the high priest residing or presiding over the sacrifice, which is him, the Lamb. So he first prays for himself, and then after that he begins to pray for his disciples, the beneficiaries of the sacrifice. Such is the role of the high priest. And now, finally, for the rest of the prayer, specifically picking up right about verse 13, He prays over the disciples by His disciples. That is, He prays for all of those who are engaged in this thing, the church. That's you and that's me. And you need to hear it as such that Jesus is praying for you now. And He's thinking about you now. Together with all the apostles and all the saints who have gone before us, we are in this thing. Call the church. Don't you ever underestimate the value of your place in these last days of the church. I think sometimes we do this thing, we look back into history, and we think about, oh, what would it have been like to be in the first century with the church back then? Oh, man, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been cool to be there in one of those great revivals in the past? And count on this. There are saints in heaven right now who are saying... Man, it would have been cool to be alive on the earth right now. with those people, looking right now, a great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews 11 tells us, who are watching us and looking at us right now and saying, how cool that they get to run the last leg of the relay. We have been handed the baton. We're going to just stop and go, oh man, the, the guy who started the race took off so fast. That was awesome. As people are passing us by... Or are you, like Paul says, going to run to win? We're part of a glorious thing. Peter says in 1 Peter two nine, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Do we live that way? Royal priesthood? Do we live that way as a holy nation, a people who belong to God our high priest now prays over the entire priesthood all of his disciples and he does it in two parts verses 13 through 21 I would call the follow through the follow through and then verses 22 through 26 the coming into the follow through and the coming into we we start here in the follow through but we're going to break it down even further than that those are kind of two big headings of these two final sections of the prayer. But in this, Jesus prays for what I'm going to call the seven shuns. The seven shuns. Because by their implementation in us, Jesus shuns evil from us. These are the seven shuns. In the follow through and in the coming into. two. Okay, watch this. Shun number one. Jubilation. Jubilation, verse 13. But now I come to you, He prays, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have My joy made full in themselves. Jesus is praying an awesome truth. What is that? He knows that simply by following Him, by truly following after Him, it will produce in our hearts joy joy Psalm 1611 in your presence is fullness of joy listen if you're a follower of Jesus and you're not joyful first of all why and secondly you are missing out on something that's not just about happy songs on the radio this is Rick's soapbox for the night I guess (laughs) If you are missing out on the joy, you are missing out on something that is vital to the follow through, which is this, this last season that we are in. Fullness of joy. Jesus says fullness of joy. I mean, this is a phrase that recurs with John. He likes the phrase, fullness of joy. That they will have my joy made full in themselves. John chapter 3 verse 29 is the first time he uses that phrase in the gospel. And it's John the Baptist speaking. John the Baptist says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, talking about himself, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. See, John the Baptist got it. Man, he was on the world stage at a pivotal time, at a pivotal moment, and he knew it. And he said, because I get to see here and usher in Jesus, because I get to prepare the way, and I get to hear Him do some teaching, I am rejoicing. My joy is full. Okay, question. If the friend of the bridegroom is full of joy, how much more the bride? Have you ever been to a wedding where the best man is more happy that the groom is there than the bride is? That's weird. (laughs) Something's amiss. Something's out of whack. We are the bride of Christ. If if John the Baptist, who's just a friend of the bridegroom, can say, "My joy is full," how much more us, the bride, full of joy. John 15:11. Jesus said, "These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy be made full." John 16.24 Until now you have asked for nothing in my name Ask and you will receive So that your joy may be made full The word full in the Greek is pleruo Just think of play doh. You know, pleruo It's joyful It literally means, full means Filled to the brim Filled to the brim I do that sometimes when I'm making my tea in the morning I get it right up to the top and, and invariably, I mean, I might as well just go ahead and reach for a napkin right then, because it's going to overflow. I go to pick it up, it's going to spill out all over. That's the kind of joy we're talking about here. A joy made full. A joy up to the very brim. The words of Jesus are not to train up your evangelists. You ought to come to my church. Nobody ever does. <laughs> Yeah, we sing worship songs first and then have a teaching. If you're lucky, someone will say hi. No one ever does to me, but you
1: know.
0: (laughs) Or if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia series, the silver chair has a character named Puddle Glum. Greatest character in the whole series, Puddle Glum. We're not called to be Puddle Glum preachers, you know? I'd like to tell you about Jesus, but... I don't know if I've got it in me. Joy, man! You can't follow Jesus and be a bummer. And if you say you're following Jesus and you are a bummer to those around you, guess what? You ain't following Jesus! Because His joy is to be made full in us. It reminds me of the old Hee Haw song. Those of you who, you know, my age, you remember Hee Haw. Remember Gloom? Despair and agony on me, and then one guy would go, whoa, deepest dark depression, excessive misery, whoa, if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all, whoa, gloom, despair, and agony on me, and they start, you know. "Um." That we wouldn't sing that here. We would sing something like this: I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart, down in. Sing with me. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart to stay, and I'm so happy, so very happy. I've got the love of Jesus in my heart. I'm so happy, so very happy. I've got the love of Jesus in my heart. Now for those of you not singing, get out of here, you bummers. You know what's funny? You guys can't sing that without smiling. And even those of you not singing are going, Really? And if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Ouch, sit on attack. I love that song. I am so happy. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord how often? Always. And again I say, rejoice. Philippians 4:4. 4, 4, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5:16, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's pretty simple. Rejoice, pray, and be thankful. Over and over and over. You want to be a faithful witness? Jubilation. You want to push back against the wickedness and the darkness and the evil in this world around you? Jubilation. Joy. 1 Peter 1.8 Peter says, Though you have not seen Him, you'll love Him. Though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know what joy inexpressible is? It's that look on your face, and that, that you can't even say anything you're so happy. It's that... It was the look that I saw on my son Corey's face when we bought him the, the Nintendo... What was the... the? No, it was before, it was way back, the Cube thing.
1: Oh, the GameCube.
0: The GameCube. We said, no way we're ever going to get another Nintendo item in this house. You just, We're not doing that. His birthday's coming up, and he's all puddle-glum, you know. He's... <laughs> And we disguise the box. He opens the box. This is my son, Corey, who does not show emotion. If you know Corey, you know this. He just no emoting. Corey, you just won a million bucks. That's great. That's Corey. He opens up this GameCube. He must have been, I don't know, 10 years old. I've never seen him smile so big. We caught a picture of it just for posterity, you know. It's that, look, joy inexpressible. Jesus prayed for. Jesus prayed for your jubilation on that night. Don't be a Debbie Downer disciple. You're enjoying your day and everything's going your way. When along comes Debbie Downer. Okay, anyway, Saturday Night Live. (laughs) Choose joy. I don't know if you're laughing because you're joyful or because Rick's just such an idiot but it doesn't matter it doesn't matter listen if you don't know joy and I mean this with absolute seriousness if you don't know joy you don't know Jesus you don't know Jesus if your life is depressing and sorrowful and heavy and weighty and difficult but man I'm at church every time the door's open come on man That is not a full heart of joy. Jesus says, I'm praying for them. I am praying for them. That my joy be made full in themselves. Verse 14, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. You know what just galls the world? Happy Christians. They don't get it. We're sitting here hating you, and you're singing, I got the joy, joy, joy. What's wrong with you? What's the matter with you people? Jubilation, man. I know Jesus. And there's not a thing you can do. And there's not a thing the enemy can do to me in this world that can take away that joy the world hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. So, second shun, protection. First he prays for jubilation. Then he prays for protection. And it's not protection by extraction which is kind of what I wish it was. You know? You say, yes, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. And shoo, you're raptured right then. That would be perfect. See that in, in Rick's world. And no one would get saved because all the Christians would be immediately gone. It's protection by preservation. The day of our extraction will come. The day of our extraction has been promised when we will be caught up, pulled out, taken away. But for now, it is protection by preservation. He keeps us. And He keeps us for a reason. He keeps us here. We are kept in the Lord now with a charge. A message different than any the world can offer. It's not a Disneyland message. You know, Jeff, just back from Disneyland, the D'Angelo's were just down there, and it's for the the diamond, you know, what is it, the diamond anniversary jubilee, just another way to make money Disney thing. Right? And Jeff was telling me that they were there on one particular day, which was kind of the opening day for it, and he said there were so many, it was so packed out that there were people, literally a sea of humanity, standing between Disneyland and California Adventure, just spread out, as far as the eye could see, people everywhere who were not getting in. Because there was no room in the park. You know what? The message we have of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not that message. You're getting in. You give your life to Jesus, you're in. Does that mean I'm one of the 144,000? No. (laughs) Not unless you're one of the 12,000 of each of the tribes of Israel, as Revelation describes. That's another study. But you give your life to Jesus, you are in protection. We have this message, this glorious, amazing message, and the world cannot counter the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no better message. There is nothing more absolute, more real, more true, more wonderful, more glorious, more exciting, more joyful than the message of Jesus, but it is a message ironically that brings more conflict than just about any other message. Jesus said in Matthew 10:36, quoting Micah chapter 7 verse 6, a man's enemies will even be the members of his own household. That's not the reason He came, but it is the reaction of some to His coming. They just hate Him. Why is that? you ever thought about that? It's not because Christians are going around strapping bombs to ourselves and blowing people up. That's that other religion. What is it that Christians do that is so bad? I was talking with my son the other day about Westboro Baptist Church. It's about as bad as it gets right there. I have no... I'm just going to say this clearly to you all, my opinion, but I have no fellowship with that church because they do not represent Jesus. They're harsh. They're unloving. They give a wrong perception of who Jesus is. They do not declare grace. They declare judgment, 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 which is not theirs to declare. That having been said, what is the worst thing that Westboro Baptist Church has ever done if you've heard about this church? The worst thing, the absolute worst thing they've ever done. And it's horrible. I'll grant you, it's horrible. But what's the worst thing they've done? They've held up picket signs with offensive messages. So if you want to compare what Christians do in the world, that's the worst. But the reality is, the reason why the world hates Christians is not because of a a little splinter group of people over here holding up protest signs and, and being offensive. They don't represent Jesus anyway. That's not why the world hates the church. Why does the world hate the church? Because anyone opposed to Jesus must be opposed to you. And that's what he said. If they hate you, remember, they've hated me first. Anyone who opposes his joy is going to be opposed to you, and even more so, who is most opposed to Jesus in all the world? Satan, the evil one. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, the world that hates them, but to keep them from the evil one. Don't forget Satan's hand in all of this. No wonder the world hates the church, because the church is here to redeem the world back to glory, back to the Father, whereas Satan is here to destroy it. And the church is getting in his way. The evil one. This phrase, the evil one. Note this is very specifically, the evil one. It is evil personified. Jesus uses this phrase, ho paneros. And ho at the beginning of it is the. So he doesn't just say, keep them from generic evil. Keep them from bad things. He says, keep them from the wicked one, the evil one, Satan himself. And the evil one is pulling out all the stops. You see, he does know these are the last days. He is fully aware of the threat that the church poses to his design of destruction. And he's hard at work. He's pulling out all the stops. He, he seems to have a stranglehold on this world. Look around. Education, media, entertainment, business, government, you name it. He's got a hand in it. And he's trying to use it to his advantage. Cheryl and I are watching the show right now. I'm not, I'm not even going to tell you what the show is. But in it a woman gets cancer. And it's, it's a heavy time and your family's around trying to help this, this this mom now has cancer and she's dealing with it and she's in so much pain and so uh, husband goes and gets her some pot, brings it to her, and the final scene of last night's show was she's lying in bed and she's just she's just smoked a joint and she's leaning back in bed just going, I feel so much better. And the show ends and I went, that's great, that's fantastic. what what is that just said? Well, a pot's legal now, so cool, and and B. What did they just preach on the show at the end there? If you're struggling with chemotherapy and you're in pain, or maybe you have some other kind of pain, go smoke pot. It'll be great. Who's got a hold of that? The evil one. He is constantly preaching a message. Don't be deceived. If it's not coming from the gospel of Jesus, if it's not coming from a believer in Jesus, guaranteed he's got a hand in it. Keep them from the evil one. Jesus prays. And my question is, are we helping him? The evil one? Are we followers of Jesus? Promoters of the message of Satan? In what we watch? In where we go? In what we take into our souls and our spirits? Are we promoting his agenda? Or are we promoting the gospel of peace? Jesus prays to keep us from the evil one by protection, by jubilation, and then we need the third shun, sanctification. Sanctification, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. That they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. The word in your life will sanctify you against all the works of the evil one. The psalmist writes, Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? How is it possible? Maybe you parents have asked that in the world. How, how am I going to help my kids stay pure? Maybe you younger people have wondered that and with all the pressures that are on you that are constant. How do I stay pure? By keeping it according to the Word. To your Word. David writes, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your Word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Note that. That's Psalm 119, 9-11. Psalm 119,
1: 9-11.
0: Okay? So if you are in a crisis, if you're in an emergency and you want to call 911, call Psalm 119, Check it out, man. How can I keep my way pure? By keeping it according to your word. His word is sanctifying. But listen, and, and this is important. It's all important, but this is really important. To be sanctified is a whole lot more than just being washed yeah, I went to church tonight and I got sanctified. What does that mean? That word sanctified? Jesus said this, and this should be a hint for us. He said, for their sakes I sanctify myself. Wait a minute. Okay, (laughs) hold on. If being sanctified is getting cleaned up and everything, well, Jesus is already perfect. Why would He sanctify Himself? What does that mean? How can Jesus do that? What's he got to be sanctified for? Sanctification, gang, is not about getting cleaned up and perfected. The word sanctified is hagiadzo, which means to be consecrated. And consecration, now that's a big deal. Consecration. To be holy. It's from the word hagias. Every time you see the word saints in the New Testament, it's hagias, where this word hagiozo comes from. Holiness, consecration, to be separated from profane use and to be dedicated to God. So when Jesus says, for their sakes I sanctify myself, what He's saying is, for their sakes I set myself apart to the work of the cross. For their sakes, I consecrate myself to the holiest of holy use. That is the sacrifice that's about to happen. I am dedicated to God for their sake, Jesus might be saying. All the utensils that were in the temple, bowls and censers and shovels and forks and pans and spoons, everything that were implements for the priest to use in the temple were consecrated, they were sanctified, they were not intrinsically righteous, they were consecrated, in that they were set apart to God, you were not to use a golden bowl from the temple for your lucky charms, that's not okay, you were not to use a golden bowl in the temple for Captain Crunch, I don't care what your favorite cereal is, it was only to be used for the work of the service of God. And so Jesus hagiadzoed Himself. He consecrated Himself to the redemptive work at Calvary. So that we would be consecrated to the redemptive work of God in the world today. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. And the more we are in the Word, the more we are set apart to be of use to God in this world as we follow it through. I just don't feel like I'm any use to God. Then you need to be in His Word some more. Because the more you're in the Word, the more sanctified, the more consecrated, the more holy you will become of use to the Father in the world. Guaranteed. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, In a large house... There are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, (laughs) useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. Do you want to be useful to the Master? Then hear Jesus' words. Sanctification. Get sanctified in the Word of God. And the more you are in the Word, the more you are washed by the cleansing of the Word, and the more you are set apart for the use of the Father. The next shun follows suit. Look at verse 18 one more time. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Number four, mission. Mission. You know, when I'm on mission, I'm not even thinking about evil. Right now, tonight, as as I'm teaching through John 17, about the furthest thing from my mind is evil. Which is probably good news for you. I can't be on mission and be caught up in evil things. So the more I'm on mission, the more I shun that which is evil in favor of that which is good that God has called me to, we have a mission. God sent Jesus and Jesus says, just as you did that, I am now sending them. They are on a mission. This is absolutely huge. How did the Father send the Son? Incarnationally. In the incarnation, that is, God made flesh. So that being flesh, we could look at Jesus and we could see God. Jesus says, I manifested Him in the flesh. So we see God as we look at Jesus. Same thing. We are on an incarnational min- mission in this world. Our call is to manifest Jesus in the world just as Jesus manifested the Father to the world. It's as if Jesus says, okay gang, take it from here. Show them. Show them what? Show them Jesus. You show them Jesus in your actions, in the way you love, in the words you speak, in your whole life, wherever you are. Incarnational mission. As Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations. What did Jesus do? He made disciples. And they followed Him. And now Jesus says, I want you to continue this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's how it's done. What's how it's done? The I'm with you always part. You see, if Jesus hadn't said that, if He just said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Period. I'd be like, that is a tall order. And I'm really not sure if we're up to it. But Jesus adds that caveat that we've been talking about every Sunday for the last three weeks. I am with you always. In us, alongside us, upon us, empowering us. And so Jesus prays for the next thing, and this is something His Spirit really does. Number five, unification. Unification, verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also, or also who believe in me through their word, that's you and me, and anyone that you are privileged to bring to Jesus. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. And, and friends, if it was that way, the world would believe that God sent Jesus. If we were that unified, as unified as Father and Son, Son and Father, as unified as Jesus in us, if we were that unified, it would rock the planet. Absolutely. Unification. Do you understand why I said earlier? Don't undervalue the significance of your place in these last days. Don't you dare, for a moment, say, "Well, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm part of the church," but man, not not the exciting times. I, don't, I know of no more exciting time to be on the planet than right now to see what Jesus is going to do, how He's going to button it all up and pull it all together and make an end of all things. Wow! And we're in this, and Jesus is unifying. And this is what's amazing. He's not just unifying us in the Bridge Fellowship or with a few churches around here in Oak Harbor and Anacortes. Jesus wants to unify us with every believer across the last 2,000 years. One unified body of Christ. In other words, from the letters of Paul to the letter you just wrote to a friend talking about Jesus. From the preaching of Peter to the teaching of Jake with the junior hires next door. And when I walked in, they were out of control, so I don't even know what he's teaching them. (laughs) Actually, I do. Your youth pastor is teaching the Word over there. From the Spirit's work in the first century to the same Spirit's work in the 21st century... We are part of this thing. And the more unified we stand on the grace and truth of Jesus, the more the world will believe. What does that look like? He already told us. He said in John 13.35, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for who? For one another. Love one another. And the world will know that Jesus is part of that. Ephesians 4, verse 2, Paul says, "...with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love." And yes, sometimes we got to tolerate one another. He says, "...being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." So jubilation, protection, sanctification, mission, unification... And in all these things we shun the evil one as we follow Jesus through this world all the while inviting the world to know and believe in Him. And this is what's on Jesus' mind. The last major thing we hear Him say before He goes to the cross. The last major section of teaching and then, of course, this marvelous prayer. And as we follow through, two more quick things and we're done. We are in transition. That's shun number six. We are in transition in this age of our jubilation, protection, sanctification, mission, unification. We are in transition. Watch this, verse 22. He says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, just as we are one. I am them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know, He repeats, that You sent Me and loved them even as You have loved Me. So Jesus repeats this prayer again. He says this line again about unification. He's not only praying for the church, but about the church. What do you mean? He's praying about our transition. And we are right now in transition, we are transitioning from the follow-through, following Him through this world, to the coming into. To the coming into His presence. And that transition can be summed up in one word and it's the seventh in our list of shuns. Glorification. Glorification. We are transitioning into glory. Read verse 22 again. The glory which you have given me, Jesus says, I have given to them. The glory of the Lord is already at play in your life. The glory of the Lord is already at work. The Father's love currently transitioning, transforming us into glorification. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord as we look to the glory of the Lord we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit that is from His glory we are coming into glory. There is a glorification, a transformation that's taking place. And as our high priest here in this prayer reaches literally the apogee, the apex, the high point of the prayer, he looks beyond the follow-through of this age and he looks into, part two, the coming into. Part two is real quick. The coming into glory. And I remind you, Jesus is about to be crucified He's about to go through the most brutal several hours of his life and he's praying for his disciples then and now to be caught up to glory. To be transformed into a glorified people. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also... Remember I said, you want to know what someone wants? Listen to what they pray for. Father, I desire that they also, whom You have given Me, be with Me where I am, so that they may see My glory, which You have given Me, for You love Me, before the foundation of the world. Quick question. Do you think when Jesus prays a prayer, He gets a yes answer? (laughs) If He prays it, it is going to happen. Going on, O righteous Father, verse 25, although the world has known You, Yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Let me tell you about that love. First of all, can you even imagine that moment when we will see His glory? Back in verse 24, I desire... That they be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. This is what I want, Jesus says. This is what I'm praying for. Lord, that they may see my glory. And so we will. Can you even imagine that? We're going to be blown, gang. We're going to be absolutely awestruck in that moment when we come into, when we see, when we experience His glory. Precious family, right now we are on that track. That's where we're headed. That's where all this is leading, coming into His glory. And if Jesus prayed for us to be with Him in heaven, guess what? We will be with Him in heaven. We will experience that glory. And something happens, something unexpected, something astounding happens when you come into the presence of His glory. Yesterday, I was walking into the kitchen and David was sitting at the counter having his little carrots and and ranch dressing. It's one of his favorite snacks. Carrots and ranch dressing. There's a little cup of ranch dressing there. The carrots dipped into it like little fingers in there and there's ranch dressing everywhere. On his little, you know, his little brown face. Ranch dressing. It's hilarious. And so I go walking by him and and I knew I should have swung wide. (laughs) Because I knew if I got too close. And I'm knowing this. I'm walking by going, swing wide, swing wide. I didn't swing wide enough. He's like, Dad! Ranch dressing. This is what happens when you come into His presence of glory. His glory gets on you. And it ain't no ranch dressing. His glory gets on you. Now you theologians might say, wait a minute. Isaiah 42, verse 8. Isaiah 48, verse 11. Both tell us, I will not give my glory to another. Okay. What happened when Moses went up Mount Horeb? Do you remember? Came back down, and all Israel was like... I mean, it freaked them out. They they told, please, put on a veil, because you're scaring us here. You're glowing. Exodus 34, 29. When Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets... In his hands. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. He didn't even know he was glowing. Which I think would have been really funny to see, you know? Here he comes walking down the path. Hey guys, and everybody's running away. Guys, guys, I got the... What's wrong with you people? Glow. (laughs) This is what happens when you come into the presence of his glory. It gets on you. Well, I don't share my glory with another. I realize that. Second Corinthians 3:7, however, says the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory on his face fading as it was. You cannot come into the presence of Jesus without his glory getting all over you. And understand that it is not sharing his glory, it's just spilling. It's not that you become glorious like God. It's just that His presence gets on us. He doesn't share His innate, glorious, exalted position, but He does lift up and exalt and glorify His people into a holy position. Now, we will never be sharers of His glory, but we will have glory on us. We will have just... The glory of His presence. Romans 8.29, I've read this several times, Listen to it in this context. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He called. And these whom He called, He justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. He will not share His glory with you, but He will glorify you. And we are coming into our glory. Even now, as we are consecrated to His work, as we're on mission, as we're filled with the joy of the Lord, we are being transformed from glory to glory. An amazing transformation. For what purpose? Revelation 1.6, He made us to be a kingdom. Priests to His God and Father to Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.10 You have made us to be a kingdom and priests to our God and we will reign upon the earth. We must be consecrated. We must be glorified for we will serve as priests in His kingdom with His glory all over us. What a glorious love. Such is the Father's love for you that He would get His glory On you, on me. Last thing. He also said this. The end of verse 24. Jesus says, note this, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the foundation of the world. Let that sink in tonight. Jesus says, you loved me, Father even before the foundation. He's talking about the love of Father for Son back into eternity. And John, in Revelation 13, verse 8, calls Jesus the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What does that tell us? It tells us that although the Father loved the Son eternally from before the foundation of the world, that at the foundation of the world Jesus was already the Lamb slain. Why? Because He loves you. That's how great His love is. That the Son whom He has loved for all eternity would become the sacrifice at the very foundation of the world as God was planning your existence and mine. He loved us that much. He proved His love, Paul says, by sending His Son to die. The high priestly sacrifice of Jesus, His beloved Son. Would you all stand up with me? For three minutes, if you would bow your heads or look up, that's what Jesus did. Looked up, but if do whatever you need to do to focus on to get into His presence and listen to His words. As I, I'm just going to pray through the prayer straight through. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on the earth, having accomplished the work which You have given Me to do. Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world but of those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. And all things that are Mine are Yours, for Yours and Yours are Mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to You. Holy Father, keep them in Your name, which You have given Me, that they may be one even as We. While I was with them, I was keeping them in Your name." which You have given Me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to You, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have My joy made full in themselves. I have given them Your Word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world." I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. But for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me. And I have made Your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which You loved Me may be in them and I in them. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went forth with His disciples over the ravine of the Cadron, where there was a garden in which He entered with His disciples. And we will come to that next week. Amen.